Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I have to tell you, we have these new headphones and I really can't hear myself talk that much. So I've been very distracted. I'm looking at the green monitor to make I'm not talking too loud. Because what happens is if I talk too loud, it goes to blue. And usually I can control it, but then I can't today. So I feel like I'm talking loud, but I'm not. In fact, I might even take them off. So I'm going topless today, people. I'm going topless for a little bit. It's going to be a little bit of a topless show. That's okay. My guest isn't topless. My guest is a very funny guy, great actor. Uh, I've been a fan for a long time. And my guest, Peter Murnick, said, have you ever had Jim Turner on? I said, I would love to have Jim Turner on. So I sent Jim. Jim Turner, how you doing? I'm doing good. I sent you a message on Facebook and you got back to me. Then you had me call you. And it's weird because I talk to people all the time. And for some reason, when like like someone sends me their number and says, hey, call me so we can set up a time. I always like freeze up. I don't know why. I'm like, I just, I'd rather text and it makes no sense because I have no problem talking to you now. Uh And I used to, I mean, when I was younger, you know, I was in sales when I got out of college and I would did stand up comedy. I'd call bookers, but I was just weird. Like you and other people, I just feel weird calling. Did you ever feel weird calling people? Are you a text guy? Well, that might just be the time, you know, it's just people do text or, or send messages on Facebook is just the preferred way of, uh, uh, I got a uh, Facebook message today from uh, someone, because I put a thing on Facebook about, uh, pr- today's my prostate checkup, right after this I'm, I'm going over, and I had my prostate removed years ago. What they're actually still looking for, when he does the digital exam, I'm not sure. Um, but anyway, I put a thing on Facebook about, you know, today's my an- annual checkup, and this guy went, oh, huh, uh, we need to talk because um, clearly he's been diagnosed with prostate cancer and he wants to know things. Right. Uh, what happens? So I said, call me. And I haven't talked to this guy in years, years and years. So we're going to talk. See, it's funny because I, I, I later have a cardiologist appointment today. Uh-huh. So and I go, I was I got out of the hospital three years ago. I was diagnosed with congestive heart failure. Never been healthier than I am now. And. I go, and it's so funny because now when I go, like every three months, and I always skirt his blood tests. He always goes, get your blood tested. I just don't like needles, and I have to go because he just says, you know, we want to check your cholesterol. But well, the problem with cholesterol these days is if you're even borderline, they put you on cholesterol medicine. Yeah. And I took that for like a month, and I felt like hell. My legs were heavy. Everyone says it goes to your legs. So you, you always want to sort of avoid it. Hmm. I've never had a cholesterol issue. Well, you're lucky. Yeah. So, so you're now you you grew up in Col- you were born in Colorado, but you travel you you moved around a lot, right? Yeah. My my folks were my dad was in the Air Force, and we moved. Uh, I lived in, I think I counted like twelve, twelve houses and apartments and trailers before I was ten years old. It was, you know, we I was born in Colorado, then we moved to Hall, Canada, which is in Quebec. And then we moved to Yuma, Arizona, which is on the Mexican border. And then we moved to Ames, Iowa. And then we moved again in Ames, Iowa. And then we moved to Esterville, Iowa, Emmitsburg, Iowa, Spencer, Iowa. Moved again in Spencer, Iowa. Um, then to Des Moines, Iowa. And then we moved in Des Moines. So I was constantly on the move. And when I left, uh, when I left to go to college, I moved again. Just move, move, move. So now the moving a lot. Do you think that? actually help you to get into the field that you do because you're always in a new school. You always are sort of, I guess we'd say auditioning somewhat because you're always a new kid. And when kids are a new kid and you're younger, they want to like you you and you want to be liked. Do you think that's one of the reasons why you followed the career you did? Uh, It's probably the only, (laughs) the only reason. Um, I I developed, uh, you know, like I I was like the class clown uh, when I was younger and I, only did that because I was always trying to basically not get beaten up um, and make friends, be funny, and and that's what that's what I did. Now, when did you start performing? I mean, as a young kid, did you get to plays, or how did this whole career? Uh, I didn't start performing, you know, legitimately until I, I was in in my senior year of high school. Um, I was truly one of the worst students ever, ever. I mean, <laughs> big grades were that bad. Terrible, terrible student and, uh, really bad grade point. Um, a friend of mine, my girlfriend, 
was going to college at Iowa State University, and I wanted to go to Iowa State because she was going to Iowa State only. I had no plans on what I was going to study. I just wanted to be where Paula was. And um, I went and met with the registrar at Iowa State, and they said, you need to be in the top half of your graduating class in high school. And I thought of my graduating <laughs> class, and I thought, of course I'm in the top half. What are you talking about? Duh. So I went to our registrar at the high school, and I said, I need to find out where I am in the graduating class. And this was before my last semester. And they said, she, I went back, and she said, well, Jim, you're in the bottom quarter. I said, I'm not in the, no, no, I'm not in the bottom quarter of the grade. That would, I'm not an idiot. And that was a, a shock to me. And I'd been getting my grades and they were bad, bad, bad grades, but I never thought. Right. I went, this blows. Oh my God. So in the course of that year, I needed to really get a good, a, a better, you know, my grades up, everything. I was taking two study halls. Out of six periods, I'm taking two study halls. And I'm not st clearly not studying. I'm just joke farting around. And I needed to take another class and because I, I, I had to drop a class. And I was going to pick up another study hall. And I thought, well, I can't be in half the school, my half my school day studying, which I'm not doing. And I went into this acting class thinking, oh, there's, a, there's an easy grade acting class, theater class. Oh, yeah. So I signed up for this class and went in and the guy who was teaching the class really was the reason I have a career in acting. He said, oh, okay. So Friday, next Friday, we're Medea tryouts. I'm doing Medea, the play, and you're trying out. And I said, no, 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 I'm not trying out for a play. I'm just, I'm here taking this class and not telling him because it looks like an easy class. And he Every day he would go, see you Friday, see you Friday, see you Friday. And I went, oh, my God, I got to go try out for this stupid play. And I tried out, and he cast me as Creon, the king who banishes Medea from the kingdom. And, um, and I started doing it. And once I started doing it, it was like, oh, wow, this is fun. But, you know, even when I left high school, I, I didn't intend on doing any acting. Uh, I bounced around for a while. I moved to Vermont. I took every job that I could. I moved, went to Europe. And then eventually I found out that because I'm diabetic, I could get a scholarship to go to one of the state schools. And they gave me, they actually gave me a scholarship to go to University of Iowa. And again, I was just hanging out. You know, I wasn't trying to be anything. And a friend of mine who was working for a uh, director, a student director, said, uh, I signed you up for the audition for Man is Man. Wait, you did what? I signed you up to audition. No, 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 no. I'm not going to, I'm not here to be an actor. Right. And I was still like the class clown type. And sh I went to this audition. The guy said, so have you what did you prepare? I said, what do you mean? He said, for the audition, what did you prepare? I, I didn't know what you did in an audition. I really didn't. And he, I said, I didn't prepare anything. And he went, oh, okay. Uh, what are you reading? And I said, um, reading Naked Lunch by William Burroughs. I had it in my backpack. And he said, just read to me. Just read something. And I opened up and started reading him from N Naked Lunch. And he cashed me. <laughs> wow. The second biggest male part in the play <laughs> Besides, Terry O'Quinn, back then it was Terry Quinn, uh, was gaily gay, and I was this, this soldier that was making his life miserable. And out of that, I met all these guys in this comedy group. There was another guy in the play named Merle Kessler. Leon Martell directed it, and they were both in the you know MFA program there at the University of Iowa. And then we did a show in a bar, and... Uh, one of the guys, Merle, worked at this bar, and they said, do you want to do a play in the bar? And he said, yeah, we'll do a show called uh, Cliff Notes Hamlet. And we did this play in the bar, and it was all, you know, improv. We just came up with a rough scenario, improv to play. It was half an hour long, completely packed on a February 9th, 1975, freezing cold in, in Iowa City. Oh, my God. 
and it was just packed in there. And then the bar owner said, when's our next show? And so we started doing shows. And then as the year went on, there was a competition among some bars, the COD and the mill and the, and somebody else, I can't remember who, um, Gabe and Walker's. These are all Iowa City places. Right, right. Um, right. <laughs> we're all, hey, come do your shows here. Come do your shows here. And we, we went to Gabe and Walker's and we did a weekly show there. And it just, that's where I really learned to be an, an actor and comic performer. It was on my feet in front of crowds. So you're doing that through, through college when you're in school? I, I didn't graduate. Okay. Uh, I, I eventually, I'm still a freshman. Okay. After five semesters of college, I'm still a freshman. That shows you how, and I've my grade point is like one point two, <laughs> but I am a distinguished alumni from the University of Iowa. See that, of course. Now, now you get you're doing this, and you're and you're really enjoying it, and yeah, you're, you're getting good at your craft. Yes. You're learning it, and it's. I think for me, a lot of times, I think like when I did stand up comedy, you learn by getting thrown to the wolves. Yep, I mean that's what you do. So. At what point did you sit there when you're having fun and you're doing this and you're loving it and you're packing the houses? At what point do you sit there and go, you know what? I can make a career of this. Does that, when does that pop into your head? Oh man. I don't know if I ever thought the guys in duck's breath. Um, there were four older guys. I was the youngest guy in duck's breath and they were all graduating with, with their MFAs, um, in playwriting and directing and all that. And I think they were thinking of career. I was just thinking of, this is fun. This is really great. And I just didn't, you know, money to me was something, oh, I'm out of money. I got to better go mow a lawn. Okay. I never thought of career. And it's, uh, it's bit me in the butt over the years, that lack of focus, <laughs> foresight. <laughs> um, but they really sort of took the, took the reins with that. And eventually you know, I was just making a career. We, we, we made a career for ourselves, uh, which came about because two of the guys started doing things on national public radio and we toured constantly. We wrote plays, we wrote skits. We constantly were writing new material and toured to, you know, it was just a scramble to get an audience to come see us. And then one of the guys created this character called Dr. Science, and he did a thing called Ask Dr. Science. And another guy created a thing called Ian Scholes. And Ian Scholes was a real fast-talking cultural pop critic. And NPR started running these things like crazy. And uh, they took off. And for a period there, for a few years, we could go to any town that had a uh, college, you know, an NPR station and sell out. Because they go, oh my God, Dr. Science and Ian Scholes. And the, the rest of us were sort of along for the ride. And we had a great show. We had a really, really good show. It was very funny. So as you're traveling and you're selling out shows, which is great. Now, when do you sit there and decide to move to L.A.? Because sometimes, I mean, it has to come eventually. Because anytime the road, the road can get a little monotonous. Yeah. Well, I was living in San Francisco and I had sort of stopped doing everything. Duck's Breath had really sort of broken up except for like one show a year. And I was mowing lawns for and taking doing yard work for friends of mine, rich friends of mine who had a big yard. And out of guilt, they would say, yeah, we'll give you five bucks an hour to clean our yard. And I was doing that. And a friend of mine in L.A. was working on a TV pilot. It's called Once a Hero. This is 1986. And they couldn't find the lead character who was a real like an American or Americana, you know, blonde haired, blue eyed, not very bright guy and super Midwestern. It was, it was like Superman only they called him captain justice. And he, the, he was about to be discontinued the cartoon world. This cartoon world was being shook up. This was the TV show and he was about to be discontinued. And captain justice comes to the real world to go, no, no, Hey, we're still here. And, you know, we're still viable, even though they weren't. You right. Know, the, and Robert Forrester played a guy who uh, chased Captain Justice to the real world. And so they had all these adventures. So anyway, this friend of mine signs me up to audition. Again, some woman taking care of me. <laughs> she signs me up to audition for this part. And I said, no, no, I'm not. Uh, this is stupid. I, I, 
I didn't know what a TV pilot was at the time. She said, I'm working on a pilot. And I said, what is that? She goes, what do you mean, what is that? It's like the first one they do. Isn't that oh. funny? You didn't know what an audition was. Yeah. And then you didn't know what a pilot was. And it, But then it just worked out for you. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that I, it always amazes me. And I think that happens a lot. Like, if you have talent, you don't really have to know exactly what's going on. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if I have talent. Oh, you're, come on. <laughs> so so, so anyway, I, I stumbled through this. She signed me up. My girlfriend from New York was visiting me. I was living in San Francisco. And we went out to dinner that night, the night before. I got food poisoning, up all night vomiting. And I couldn't get up in the morning. It was like, I'm not getting up and driving to Los Angeles for an audition for a TV something. I'm not doing that. (laughs) Forget it. I'm sick. And my girlfriend, now my wife, started going, Jim, Jim, you got to get up, got to get up, got to get up. And I was going, no, stop it. I can't get up. I'm really sick. I've been vomiting all night long. And she started bouncing on the bed. She was jumping up and down on the bed going, get up, get up, get up, get up, get up. And singing in this (laughs) opera thing she does that she knows annoys me. Get up, get up, get up. And I was going, stop it. Stop it, Lynn. I mean it. Bouncing on the bed. Finally straddling me and bouncing me so I'm bouncing up in the air. And I went, oh, my God, this is ridiculous. So I got up. We drove to L.A. She drove I, half the way and pulled in. I looked like crap. I mean, I looked like crap. I was sleeping. You know, my hair was all matted. I hadn't read the script. I didn't really know except that it was a superhero I was reading for. And I was reading for the director and the producer and the casting director and, and the guy who wrote it. And they said, I read the scene. There were three scenes I was supposed to prepare. And I read one scene and they said, so did you, do you know what this is? I said, well, not, no, not really. They said, did you read a script? And I said, I I didn't get a script. And they went, okay, you know what? Can we try this again tomorrow? Here's a script. Go get a full night's rest. And, you know, are you sick? And I said, yeah, I'm really sick. And they said, okay, go get a full night's rest. Read the script. Let's try this again which they never do. That right, never right. happens. And I read the script and went, oh my God, I love this guy. And he was really this dim, you know, guy who thought he could save the world. And I went in the next day and basically nailed it. Um, did one scene and they went, great. Okay, let's do the other scene. We did all the scenes. And then they started flipping through the script going, okay, turn to page 35. Right there. All right. So let's let's try that scene at the bottom there. Let's just go with the, the the okay. And I'd read that. And finally, when I left, they got up and walked me to the door. And they're saying stuff like, "We need tape, and we need this." And this is pre-cell phones. This is right. So you actually have to go get right a recorder or tape something. It's not that easy. So I leave, and my my girlfriend and I drive from Los Angeles back up the coast. We take the one freeway or one highway and don't, you know, I don't call in, check messages. I just, we're three days. I get home and there's all these messages going, where are you, Jim, Jim, this is uh, so-and-so. We need you to call in now. I called in and said, what's going on? And they said, we want to bring you to the producers. And I thought, well, I, th- I thought we did the producers. I, th- I thought I met the producers. And now I'm meeting the, you know, the new world television and I had to go audition for them, did that audition, thought I blew it, but then they said, we're going to take you to the network. So they took me to the network. Um, and every step of the way was a new thing. It was like, whoa, wow, what? And I got it. I got the part. I was the star of a TV show that we shot. ABC gave us, you know, primetime, eight o'clock, Saturday night, one hour family drama. And about three weeks before we started shooting it, I got fired. Why? And, well, I later found out that uh, through somebody inside ABC that I wasn't handsome enough. I mean, they bought the show. They had picked the show up, bought it, given me money to move to L.A. And this guy called me up and said, do you know what happened? I said, I I don't know. And he said, well, you weren't handsome enough. I think he thought that would make me feel better. So yeah, I, I, I that always moved. makes you feel better. Oh yeah, you're not handsome enough. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, you know, you just don't look right. <laughs> so out of that, I had started doing Randy the Redwoods uh, on MTV, just 
on a lark. A friend of mine worked at MTV, and he brought me in to shoot some some spots. And now, that I, character, did that come from an old character you did? Well, that came from Duck's Breath. That was okay. the thing I did on Duck's Breath. And uh, it was because I didn't know how to play the guitar and wanted to. I, I <laughs> billed myself one night in the Iowa Memorial Union as Jim Turner sings nine songs. And then I just went up with a guitar and I had nothing. I couldn't play a song. <laughs> and I thought, I'll just make up some songs. And it was a pretty much a grand failure. But I liked doing it. And there was something about the, the thing. And then later it became Randy. Um, the, oh, the reason why it became Randy, this is where it came from. Uh, Country Joe and the Fish. Right. Everybody thinks the fish is, you know, the band, the fish, but it's not. It's, it's this guy, Barry Melton. So the fish was, we did a show with him in San Francisco. And it was Duck's Breath and the Fish. And he, I don't know if, he's like a lawyer now. Um but I think he was really stoned and he at some point stood on a chair and this place was a little pizza place and his, he was so tall and he was standing up in the lights. His head was up in the lights and I went, is this guy really stoned? Does he know what he's doing? This is really hysterical. And I just said, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be that guy. And that's what I'll do is Randy. And I'll never get to, to a song. Uh, I'll try. I'll tune. I'll do all these things. And now it's broken down where Randy doesn't have any strings on his guitar. He doesn't, you know, it's it's very ethereal. Now, what year was that? It was on MTV. Uh, that was 87. We shot the, the spots. And then they came and asked me. They, they were so popular that they asked me if I wanted to run for president in 1988. And so that's when we made the the bulk of them. Well, it's funny because I, I remember the Randy because I graduated college in 86. And, and back then, everybody watched that TV. I know. I mean, every I mean, it was like you had CBS, NBC. We didn't even watch ESPN. We watched MTV because we loved the videos and we loved music. And it was a great little interstitial. And everyone knew who you were. So, I mean, you must have had started getting a lot of uh, college people. Well, I guess because you're not. When you go out, you didn't look like Randy, but would people notice you, or, or did you ever go out as Randy, or how did that work? The Occasionally, we, we went out as Randy. We went down to Daytona Beach uh, in the heyday of this, and and the, the good thing is I, I really don't look like Randy. I don't look you know, anything yeah. like Randy. So when I just walk around by myself, it, you know, I'm it's good. And we did, uh, there's, there's two stories about this. Uh, we went to Daytona Beach, and we couldn't go anywhere. And this was the early days when MTV was just starting. I, I remember being I remember being in Fort Lauderdale in 1986, and we would watch that top 10 video countdown every day. You watched it. We go and then we go out and drink. So we were down there, and we couldn't ever. If I would walk on the beach dressed as Randy, it would just be this mob scene, just now, a mob scene. Was that scary for you? Because you, well, it was weird. It was really weird. Um, I, I, it wasn't great. I didn't really enjoy it, and I didn't. I didn't use it to my advantage. I don't know what that advantage would be, but uh, yeah, it was it was very very weird. Um, years later, after I'd been off the air, um, this was '94 when they did the 25th anniversary of Woodstock, and MTV went and had a stage that was next to the big stage, and it was a big big deal, the 25th anniversary, and. Somebody at MTV said, oh, hey, Jim hasn't been on in the air in a while. Let's have Randy come back and sort of do some spots up at Woodstock. So we made a spot that sort of promoted, you know, their presence at Woodstock. And we went up there and we got there the night before and drove all around the grounds. We had, you know, these golf carts and shot stuff everywhere and me being Randy. And then they were going to open the gates at 6 o'clock p.m. For the you know let people in all night for the next day and we went down to shoot people at the gates and we're shooting there and i'm dressed as randy and i'm going to interview people as they're coming in and they open the gates and you hear these people going oh my god it's randy dude <laughs> dude it's randy and they come running over i got completely surrounded and people are literally touching me and i went and it was 
very weird because it was a thing that was, used to be on the TV, you know, and now it, it, it what is this? It's, and it's you've been weird. gone for a long time. Gone for a long time. And so anyway, we shot a bunch of stuff. The next day we came back and, you know, there were hundreds of thousands of people there. And we could not walk in the grounds, could not walk in the grounds. And we were shooting a thing up on the MTV stage, which was next to the main stage. And it sort of looked out on the crowd. And so we were going to shoot this thing as if I'm, you know, singing at Woodstock. Right. And we just shot it so that it <laughs> appeared that I'm really on the main stage at Woodstock. And I went up to the microphone and nobody can hear me. And I'm talking like this, and I'm going to sing this song. And everybody in the, the sea of people in front of the MTV stage stand up, and they start chanting, Randy, Randy, Randy. And there were thousands of people chanting, Randy. And I I was, I mean, that just froze me. And I looked over at the guy that I did all that Randy stuff with, and I went, what the fuck? <laughs> and he goes, I, I don't know, man, just. Oh, it was so great. That was that it must, was great. It must be such a high just being on stage and feeling just that energy of just them. And even though it's a character, it must just be amazing. You must be like, oh, my God. I could, if I ask everybody for $10 yeah, right yeah. now, I could make $100,000 or more and just walk out. <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh, it was, it, was, it was cool. Now, have you ever brought Randy back since then? Uh, occasionally. Um, I... Just every once in a while, I do a lot of shows at Largo and the Steve Allen Theater, and I brought him back for for certain things. Um, it's really fun to do. It's a great character to do. And my comedy group, Duck's Breath, is doing our final show ever, ever. Uh, our fortieth. This is our fortieth anniversary this year. And you know, even though we only do shows like once every five years, and we weren't going to do anything, but one of the wives of the Duck said, "You guys." It's your 40th. Put it put it to, put to the grave. And so we are doing one more show in, in uh, Berkeley at Freight and Salvage in Oakland, actually. Um, and I'll do Randy at that for sure. Why, you guys, why is it the last show? It just, it's done. It's you've been there not a We're old. <laughs> We're old. We've got a couple bits that people are actually afraid of. Okay, are we going to die during more than a box? Are we going to die? Is somebody going to pass out? Um. And it's just, every, you know, everybody's moved on. And it, there just has to be a point where, okay, this is done. It was great. It was really, really great, but it, it's done. Now, after the Randy, after the Randy thing, as you're doing that, Randy, after that, what did you do after that? I mean, because you, you have this character, and luckily, as you said, you don't look like Randy, so you're not going to get typecast into a Randy, because right. if you look like a, him, they go, well, he can only play this. I know you did some voice work for Rugrats or yeah, stuff. Yeah. And now how, did, how did you parlay into the voice work? Uh, the, the voice work, I think was, I, I believe I, if I remember this correctly, the guy, there was a, a producer at Rugrats who I think was a Randy fan and he just called me in to, you know, do some parts and I ended up on like four episodes, which was great. Yeah, it must be great. I mean, it's the, everyone says voice work. So oh, good. I love just, voice work. Oh, now, do, have you done a lot of voice work since then? Uh, some. Um, not, not enough. I, I, I really, really enjoy it. My friends in the voice world say it's really tough right now. Um, the, I was, there was a cartoon that was, I wish had gone it's called Fathead. And it was created by this, uh, writer named Vince Calandra. And in it, I played, it was a, about a kid who was on the first wave of human intelligence and his parents were basically apes. And then he was a human kid. And um, I was the parents. I, would, I was mom and I was dad. And it was a lot of... Uh, 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 and we would go through the script and, okay, mom is really upset here. Uh, uh, and I had no words. And he, he actually spoke words, he and the other kids in it. And it was really great. I mean, it was really great. I think you can find it somewhere. Um, and I was going to be both parents. And I went, oh, my God, what a great job. I don't have to remember lines. Yeah, yes. <laughs> I could just grunt these ex expressions of, um, and it didn't go. It, it was just the pilot. 
So you're you're actually doing act, different acting gigs after Randy. Now how when how well, did now you I'm be- living in New York. I moved to okay. New York. I no. never moved to LA there. Okay. And I was living in New York. Was there for about three and a half years, and and Randy had run its course there. And I thought, well, it's you know, I've never lived in LA, and they paid me to move to LA a long time ago, and I never did. Um, so my girlfriend at the time had been there for 15 years in New York on the Lower East Side. And I said, do you want to move to LA? And yeah, so we we moved out and had a kid as soon as we arrived and weren't ready for the kid. And um, we have a child now, 23. Um, and I've been here, I'm the house that I live in now, I've lived longer than anywhere in my life by double. And the 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 house before I lived in LA was the previous longest I'd lived anywhere in LA. In in my in in anywhere. So um I love it. I'm I'm so happy. Oh here. the weather. I mean well today's a little hot, but yeah. but if you sit there, as I say, my girlfriend just moved out a year and a half ago from back east where I grew up and she sits there and looks at, you know, her, talks to her family or her friends back on Facebook, shoveling snow, and she's sitting on her little patio, you know, drinking iced tea. Or she goes, you know, she's out there reading, and she's like, God, just think for for 45 years of my life, I could never, I never read outside in December. She yeah. goes, now she goes, I mean, it's weird getting a Christmas tree when it's that warm. You, yeah. you sit there and go, well, oh, but then you go, you know what? It's still, it feels like Christmas inside. They may be laughing at us soon. I know, <laughs> I know exactly. So now. You're out here acting, and now when did Arliss come about? Because I love that show, and that's that was the beginning. Like Arliss and uh, and Dream On were like the earlier days of HBO. Yeah, and and what was you were doing different parts, different smaller parts, and then they were you thinking, okay, I'm going to audition for the show on HBO, and it's going to run for a long time, or how did that whole audition come up? Um, it was just the the casting director. There, there was a. I did a series just prior to this, um, where I did this. I went back, to, going back a little bit. There was a movie called uh, Joe's Apartment that MTV did, and it was about Jerry O'Connell played this, um, you know, guy from Iowa, and he he moved to New York and he's just discovering all the things. And I played a uh, performance artist in that called Walter Shit, and uh, I did all these you know, performing art things. And um, in the course of that, they dyed my hair black, like jet black, but kept my blonde roots. And then they had to dye it back blonde for the the scene at the end of the movie. And when they did, the guy dyed it red. I mean, it was like Raggedy Andy (laughs) red. And they went, "What, what is this? And so they stripped it again. So my hair has been stripped twice now to get it to, to blonde. And it was just like this dead, dead hair, really weird looking and just a strange color. And I went into audition for this, for this TV show called If Not For You. And I was reading for one part that was really wrong for me. And after I read, they said, would you mind? reading this other part and there was an engineer a radio like a recording engineer who was really just weird it was randy i mean it was totally randy and they said can you read this part and it was just based on the way i looked and i said yeah and i went out in the hall and i'm looking at this going oh my god this was like this was like a big fat ball for me to hit out of the ballpark <laughs> and i and you rarely get this auditioning where you go okay you're not going to see anybody does what I'm going to do here. And I knew where to put pauses. I mean, I knew, I knew exactly how to do this. And I got this part. And I, when I did the network audition, um, I said something about, you know, so don't, I'm, don't worry, I'm cutting my hair. And by the time I'd driven home, they'd cast me and called me and said, you got the part. Don't touch your hair. (laughs) So, it went seven episodes. It was really funny. Elizabeth McGovern was on it. Hank Azaria, Peter Krause, uh, Deborah Jo Rupp. Great cast. Really, really funny. And 
it just didn't go for whatever reason. And um, the casting directors for that brought me in for a part on Arliss. And again, they brought me in for a part that Michael Boatman ended up playing of the kind of uptight in, you know, accountant. And I, it was like, I'm not good at this. That's weird. No, because it's weird because it, they, they, they saw your pass, uh, you know, the Randy and then yeah. the engineer. And there's you think they would say, OK, he's better at these characters. Let's give him a character that makes sense. But no, we're going to we're just going to have him. Let's just put a suit on him and have him be a prick. That's what we're going to do. <laughs> And it just makes no sense. And you think sometimes for casting, it doesn't make sense what they see when they see you have a proven proven track record in these other characters. Yeah. I mean, who knows why I, I have, I can't, I, I don't understand the casting process at all. But I went in and read for that and I wasn't really well suited to that. I don't do that kind of stuff well. And then they said, can you mind, you mind reading the quarterback? Can you go out in the, and I went in the hall again and, Kind of read through this one. Oh, this is more me. It was really dim, you know, and got that part. And it was seven years, and it was a fantastic job. Did you ever think it would run? I mean, it, it's like anything. When you go into, and as once again, it's HBO. And so, and it, it's a, a series of HBO back then is a lot different than a series of HBO oh, yeah, now. Yeah. Because not nearly as many people had HBO. And I think it's because of shows like Art. Listen to shows that came along that people said, you know what? We're tired of this crap on regular TV. You know, we want to see something different. And I think it helped building up. It was more like Arliss was one of the first shows that had a lot of sports figures appear in it. Yeah. A lot of, like, you didn't see sports people like you might see a Muhammad Ali on something, but you didn't see really sports cameos. And for the sports fan, they could watch it. But then if you weren't a sports fan, you could watch it because it was just good stories. Did you ever think when you started, when you got cast in it, that it would end up being seven seasons? Did you, I mean. Oh, no. What, oh, how, no, what did you, we, how did you think? Do you think it was going to be gone after one, or what did you think? I mean, we were just, you know, shooting the pilot was just hoping that they'd do a year, and we did. We got a year, and it was this was during, uh, it was a dream on, and then I think Larry Sanders was next for HBO, and I think we were like the third series that they did. Um, and I think it's a lot because Robert Wool had a, you know, relationship with Chris Albrecht, who used to run it, um, and they gave it a shot. And we were literally canceled every year. Uh, one time they had actually said, you're canceled. This was, I think, between seasons two and three. You're canceled. You're done. And Chris Albrecht was in a car going somewhere, and his limo driver said, so, hey, what's going on with the Arliss? You guys doing that again? And he said, well, act no, we, we actually just canceled. No, no, you can't cancel that. <laughs> And it was really funny because we were really, you know, I used to do a lot of HBO events because um, we got free tickets to all the HBO events. And Sandra and I would go and Michael Boatman would go. And we were, we were always recognized by the people parking our car, the people directing us in line. We never got recognized by the big wigs. It was, it was always like the working people working around these things going, Oh man, Hey, Arliss, you coming, is Arliss coming back? Well, well, Hey Kirby. And you know, we were just sort of off the radar. Uh, I think Arliss was off that showbiz radar, but you know, regular folks really liked it. Now did, uh, did you get, did you get a big following? Like if you went to a sporting event, would, would people recognize you or I mean because it seems like yeah a lot of sports fans like and sports fans can be insane I mean sports fans can be insane more than the yes. Woodstock kids sports fans can be crazy yes. did anything ever weird happen to you with sports fans and your character or people recognizing you because now you're not Randy you're someone who when we see you we know who you are yeah it it, it never got insane it was always it was nice and sporting events <clears throat> were the place to go to to get recognized. I went to a Yankee game once with Robert and he was walking down the aisle to our seats and I was walking behind him and you could see all of these people pointing, going, oh my God, oh my God hey, and then yelling at him. So I just, I purposely stood back about 10 feet until <laughs> he was in his seat to like, okay, I, that made me uncomfortable. That, that, that kind of recognition is weird to me it's got to be hard because it's like you just want to go see a ball game you yeah. know it's like you, i want to sit here and watch a ball game and people are going hey hey and now i mean it's 
50 times worse now because, you know, if you guys were at the ball game and let's say, oh, my God, he spilled something, it'd be all over TMZ. Oh, they must have been drunk because they're spilling beer. You know, yeah. it's just it's crazy like that. Yeah. And everybody's filming everybody. And um, I'm, I'm happy to not be a famous person. It's, it's yeah, I mean, it's, but but you were recognized a lot. Now, after Arliss ended, was that were you sad or did you know it ran its course? Uh, I was really sad. I was really sad. Oh, my God. Um, and it was the only year between year seven and what would have been eight was the only year that we were almost positive we were coming back. We were, we were never, ever coming back. And it was always last minute. And we all knew that we were coming back. And Robert had called me once and said, okay, I've been talking. I can't say anything, but we're coming back. In the meantime... Um, my whole family goes to New York and I used to live in New York. So, so my family from Iowa came out to New York cousins, everybody, we all met in New York and, and stayed in a hotel and, you know, went around, did New York things. And I wanted to have all my New York friends meet my family. And so I rented out a restaurant and, you know, it didn't, it wasn't like a hundred thousand dollars, but right. it was a, it was a few thousand dollars. And, and I turned 50 that, that year also. So I did this big party going, well, we're coming back in the fall. Not a big deal. Um, I'm going to throw a party for everybody to meet. And then I was going to have a big 50th anniversary or 50th birthday party. And so I had these, and that was all planned. And I'm doing a golf charity event in Florida. And, and, and I won the, the, the golf tournament. I, I was, my team won the golf tournament and we're going back to the hotel on the bus. And this was back in the old flip phone, you know, breaking bad flip phone days. And I'm standing above metal arc lemon. He's sitting on the bus and I'm holding a thing. We're going back and I'm going, wow, there's metal arc lemon. Boy, worshiped as a kid. Right. This is so cool. This is so cool. And my phone rings. Oh, and it's a producer from Arliss. I go, Hello. And he goes, oh, boy, Jim, have you talked to Robert? I said, no. And he goes, well, we're not, it's not happening. We're done. I went, wait, no, 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 no. (laughs) I just rented a restaurant in in New York and and threw a big party. And and I'm throwing a big 50th birthday party. No, we're not. What what do you mean we're done? He said, we're done. What? And I hung up the phone and I'm standing and I started to feel like, oh God, this is horrible. And I look and there's Metal Arc Lemon. And I went, this is just the greatest. So uh, I was really, I was very, very sad that that, that, that ended. Do you know why they, they can't, I mean, was there a reason? No idea. No, I don't think it was ratings. I think it was just, you know, HBO doesn't stick with stuff for a long time. Right. And it, it kind of. At that point, we were on longer than any other show. I think Larry Sanders was only five seasons. Um, And that was the year that all this stuff happened in sports. You know, the Kobe got arrested. And it was like, oh, my God, we could be doing the greatest stories with this. That's the thing. That would have been perfect, like the prime time. So after that ends... Do you sit there and you take some time off or you decide, okay, I'm still going to act? No, you just keep, you know... I didn't get a whole lot of, you know, Arliss didn't get a whole lot of like, uh, uh, like me being on Arliss didn't lead to, oh, get that guy on Arliss, you know, unlike other shows. It, it it took a while to, for me to get back up and running. Um, and, you know, I haven't really been a regular on anything. I've done a lot of guest star stuff. Uh, it had some good movies. It's some really nice movies, um, Bewitched and Kicking and Screaming and Meet Dave, stuff like that. Uh, but this thing for Granite Flats is the newest. That's like the, okay, it's like a job. Well, Granite and, Flats is funny because uh, I have to. It's coming on Netflix, I believe, yeah. and it's funny because Peter was on. Also, Brian McNamara was on, and yeah. uh, he directs a lot of the episodes. Yeah, and uh, it's funny because it's one of those things. I saw the cast, and it's a lot of people you recognize, like George Newburn's on it, and different people. I mean, there's a lot of people you recognize. And at first, you weren't sure where to find it, because it was like on Utah, or it was like on some weird BYU network. TV. Yeah, and, and now what was that like? Because, I mean, I, it's because Peter said it was, he went there, and he was amazed 
what a amazing set and everything was. I mean, what's that like going to Utah? Because we all think Utah, I mean, it's just normal. You think, well, Utah, Mormon, but I heard it's a great city. I heard Utah is a great state. I mean, what was it like? Because Arliss was shot out here, right? Yeah. Okay, so you're shooting out here at HBO. And as you work your career, I mean, you've been in New York and in L.A., so you've been shooting in big, the two best cities. What was it like when you went to Utah? I mean, Uh, was it? Well, it is the best, I would say, of all the shows that I've done and shot, it is the most fun experience I've ever had in my life. Why is that? Um, It's like when you do a TV show here or a movie, you shoot all day with somebody and then you go, okay, hey, either see you tomorrow or, or yeah, let's get together for dinner sometime. And you never do. Right. You just don't. It's so many people. You just don't do that. Um, when we shoot in Salt Lake City, we're all staying in the same hotel. We all go out to dinner almost every night. We're put up in these, you know, suites. It's a Marriott suite. So we all got kitchens and we have potluck parties. We have birthday parties and we literally go out every night and it's a blast. It's like, it's like you're in a theater company traveling from town to town. Um, and you'll finish the day and you'll, you know, be in the car going back to the hotel and you get a text message. Okay. Uh, made reservations for seven 30 at pallet. Are you in? Oh, okay. Yeah. And we all just hang out and it, it's fantastic. It really is. It's fantastic. The show is one of the funnest shows I've ever been on. It's really bizarre. I've described it as leave it to beaver meets twin peaks. And that's not, that's really what it is. You know, it's this family show set in 1962 and all this weird stuff happens in this little town. And it's, and it's really for families. You know, there's a group of kids that have a detective club. I play the father of one of the girls that's in this detective club. And I'm a doctor doing MK Ultra experiments on army soldiers, thinking I'm doing the right thing. MK Ultra was this horrible, horrible program the CIA did where they give LSD to army soldiers to see if they could control their minds to basically, you know, go kill Castro. And they they gave LSD to thousands of, of soldiers. One guy they gave LSD to 75 days in a row, and he forgot who he was. He had just awful, awful stuff. And so me and my wife in the show, who's played by the wife of the actual writer of the show, um, think we're doing the right thing. You know, we're, we're trying to help, you know, young boys not be killed in war by the Soviets. But we're doing this horrible, horrible thing. And so it's sort of gray area. Um, and it's, the, the scripts are great. The cast is great. Christopher Lloyd is in it. Parker Posey is in it. I, I wanted to go for 10 years. And I tried to convince my wife to move to Salt Lake City. Well, said, that's what that Peter said. A lot of people move. Like some of the, the cinematographers already lived out there. or things Because well, they can get such great deals on property. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. My, I had my wife come, <clears throat> come visit last last season. And I said, I mean, Lynn, think about this. We could sell our house in L.A. and we could buy whatever house we wanted and we could live here. And and then of the three days that she was there, one day was 28 degrees. And she woke up and she looked at the thing on her phone. She went, nope. And I said, Lynn, Lynn, I mean, think about it. She goes, no. End of story. Stop talking. I said, Lynn, it's not. She goes, no, no. Nope. Don't talk. Don't talk. Not moving here. Now, when you go back there. When you went when you shoot Utah and it's cold, do you acclimate to it? Because I know when I moved out here, I've been out here and I would sit there and after a while I started getting being a real wuss to the weather. Like I'd find myself walking home at night, you know, from Burbank mm-hmm. and I'd have a leather jacket on and a scarf mm-hmm. and it's like fifty and I go, Wait a second. When I was younger in Philadelphia, we would run to the clubs and it'd be minus two and we would leave our overcoats in the car so they wouldn't get stolen and we don't want to check them. We don't have the money to check them. And and you would never get cold. Is it weird for you when you go out there? Because we get spoiled out here. It's that, And all of a sudden we start getting cold when it's... Yeah. But it's nothing. It's like my girlfriend's like, we should put in the heat on. I'm like, it's 68 in here. We're not putting the heat on. You know what I mean? What, what, was it weird for you when you go out there? Well, not really because I grew up in Iowa. And so, you know. But being out here, has your body lost that? 
Yeah, it does. It does. Um, but I take, when I pack up to go back, I take, you know, I pack up for summer, spring, winter, fall. I just take a whole bunch of stuff and I layer, you know. I, that's, I everyone, everyone, of, from the Mid, everyone from the Midwest always goes, we layer. Yeah. That's all I said. I take a lot of layers and um, it does get cold though. Yeah. Now, how did that role come about? Because your your background is comedy. I mean, most of your roles have been comedy, and the movies we mentioned have been comedy. You know, Bewitched and Arliss was a comedy, and so your background, Randy Redwood's comedy, and Crazy Engineer Guy, it's all comedy. So when a show comes about this, is it a challenge to you? And how did they, how did it all come about with the audition? Well, I got the part, and they said for BYU TV, and I went, wait. What's BYU TV? Is that Brigham Young University TV? They have a TV station? Yeah, oh. And <clears throat> so I was a little, you know, perplexed. What, what is this thing? And then I got this part, and it's a, it's a doctor scientist who's also really bumbling, who's really a fumbler. And, and you know, one of those guys, I had a pen right at the, um, oh, what did I do with that? I get always misplacing, always just fumbling. And his wife kind of takes care of everything. His wife is always going, right here. Oh, here you go. And that's something that I do really well. I, I have to say that's really, that's my wheelhouse is being the nice, the nice guy who's very bumbling and um, seemingly intelligent, but uh, kind of an idiot. And, and when I went in, I went, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to give, I knew I could do it great. Right. And um, and was really happy to get it. And that's what I get to do on the thing. Is be, and there was a, we were shooting one day. And I don't have a lot of, a ton of lines. My wife gets a lot of the, you know, exposition that we need to get out. Because her, just her as an actress and her character is much more that way. Um, you know, here's what's going on. And she's always telling me what's going on. And I'm often just sort of deer in the headlights. And there was one scene where she and this guy, David Naughton, and another person had all these lines. And I'm not saying anything. And at the very end, I had one line, one line. And I said it, and it got this huge burst of laughter from the crew because it, it was so just clueless. And... I, it was the only time on the show that I was going, you know, I, you guys can give me a few more lines. Right. Come on. <laughs> you can give me a few more lines. But I, it wasn't. I was just reacting, reacting, and then I get this huge laughter, and the script supervisor comes over to me and goes, oh, Jim, you are so lucky. I said, why, why is that? And she goes, oh, poor Maya. That's my, my wife. And poor Maya's got to talk, 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 do this, do that, do this, do that. And then at the end you go, blah, blah. And everybody laughs. And I went, you know, yeah, you're right. Shut up, Jim. So it's been three seasons it's been on. Yeah. And is there a fourth coming? They were, we're all hopeful for a fourth. Uh, I, I can't imagine that they wouldn't now that they have Christopher Lloyd and Parker Posey and George. And well, you know what? You know what would be interesting for it is since you're going to be on Netflix, that starts a whole new, a whole new chapter of viewers. Oh yeah. And what happens a lot of times? And it's is, doing well on Netflix, by the way. And so okay, yeah. it is on. Because I know Peter. Peter said it was uh, coming on, so it's on. Yeah. So I can start watching it. Okay, yep. I can start watching it. So now what's great about that is even if BYU doesn't want to pick it up, if it's doing well on Netflix, Netflix will pick it up because I think now it's that's the way it is. I mean, you, we've become such a binge TV. It's like that show uh, Aquarius with uh, David mm-hmm. Duchovny. Me and my girlfriend binge watched. I mean, we, you know, we'd watch not, we wouldn't like, we're going to watch 12 episodes, you know, on a weekend, but we watch, if there's nothing on TV, we watch two episodes of that. And then you're done for the season and now I'm sitting there going, we had it recorded with the DVR. I go, yeah. we, we don't have to record this. We saw it. And I think that's what's great is because it's a matter of people. People get into a show more like that I, now. I think because the attention span, like a like a Granite Flats, people start watching it, and if they like it, they're just gonna keep watching it. And then and that must be great for being an actor in it because it gives a chance that it will get picked up. But they see the network sees that you know it's doing, and if not, there's always that outlet that it could be on Netflix. Yeah, it, it's. Was it? I think House of Cards was that their first. 
binge thing that they released all the, the I think whole so. season. And and I went, what? What are they doing? That's ridiculous. How do you get people to tune in? And it's changed TV viewing oh. completely. Everywhere, every show. I mean, it's like, as I said, well, NBC did it with Aquarius. That shows it's changed. But a network's going, we're putting these all on demand at one time. I love it. I you know, I watch Breaking Bad that way. I watch House of Cards that way. And you end one and go, you don't want to wait till Sunday. You want exactly. to go, okay, I, I have to know what happens now. I just, sometimes I, you go into bed at four in the morning. Yeah. And go, what happened? I just turned my friend Betty, Betty McCray is the sound guy. And he, I told him about Bloodlines on uh, AMC. And I go, you got to watch it. So then I he watched it. I get a message like the next day. Oh, you suck. I had to get up early for a gig. <laughs> I had to work today. And I end up watching four episodes. And I go, dude, it gets even, I don't know if you've seen Bloodlines, but it just gets better each episode. And I think it's great because you're right. I don't want to wait a whole week. I don't want to sit there and go, oh, wow. You know, and it's so. So we have a few minutes left. Actually, time flew. What's going on now? You said you have an audition later? Uh, I have an audition for, I'm not even sure what it is. You just. Um, I, yeah. Now, I, I don't want to say its name. Okay. Because I don't know what it is. Now, the, the, li- the last live show. With your group is when? Uh, August 29th at Freight and Salvage in Oakland, California. Now, who's all in that? Uh, Merle Kessler, Dan Coffey. Dan lives in Thailand now, and he's coming back just for the show. Uh, Leon Martel, who lives down here in L.A. with his wife, Beth Ruscio, the actress. And this guy, Billy Allard. And our manager lives up in Nevada City. Um, And, yeah, this is... This is it. Now, do you still do live performances? Oh, yeah, yeah, all the time. I have a comedy group down here called Two-Headed Dog that yesterday we just got our website up okay. up and going. <laughs> I've I've owned the rights to TwoHeadedDog.com for eight years, and there's always been an ad for something there, you know, some parked ad. And um, we finally hired a guy to put our website up. So go to TwoHeadedDog.com, and we do shows once a month at the Steve Allen Theater. That theater's great. I went to see oh. Toby Huss's uh, Christmas show there. Yeah. And it was packed. And it's such a great place because it's intimate and it's just, it's got great acoustics. Yes. And the guy who runs it, Amit, is fantastic. And he really likes, he just likes stuff that he likes. Um, Largo's the same way. The guy who runs Largo, Flanagan, likes stuff that he likes. You know, he's not going to book something that he did just to make money. He wants shows that, oh, I'll, I'll watch that. And he, he let us perform at Largo for a long time. Um, and then when he moved to the big place on La Cienega, we kind of got, because we just can't draw 280 people. But we do fill the Steve Allen every once in a while. And we have a bunch of shows. We have Girly Magazine Party, um, Clown Town City Limits, uh, Two-Headed Dog, and it's four guys, Craig Anton, Mark Fight, Dave the Gruber Allen. We have a different music guest every month. Uh, we have a best, uh, special guest every month. And um, it's just a wild two-headed dog. Is like a there's, there's never been two two-headed dog shows the same ever. That's awesome. They're, some of them are just train wrecks. And, the, and this website is twoheaddogs.com. Dot com. And then that will, we can find out when you're going to play and stuff yeah. like that. Well, I want to thank you for coming on. It oh, was thank pleasure. you. Now, do you tweet? I don't tweet. Okay. I'm only on Facebook. Do you have a fan page on Facebook? I don't even have a fan page. But I have me on Facebook. It's a picture of uh, me with wild hair from Joe's apartment. Okay. I saw that. I was saying that picture. So, yeah, people, check out Two-Headed Dog. Uh, Go check it out. And, uh, yeah, and uh, follow. You don't tweet. I wish you tweeted because I bet you'd be a good tweeter. I think I bet you had some good stuff to say. Uh, The the writer on Granite Flats tweets, and he, he wants to strangle me. And I always put a thing on Facebook, you know, when Granite Flats is going to start. And, and uh, check it out. I'll be live tweeting during the, the premiere episode. <laughs> oh, that's right. I don't have a Twitter account. Well, people, check out Granite Flats. Check out Two-Headed Dog. Uh, follow me on Twitter, at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. Go to my website. There's over 380 episodes up on there, coopertalk.net. Send me a email, cooper at coopertalk.net. Also, iTunes and Stitcher. It's one word, Cooper Talk. You can do it there and check it out. And don't forget my new website, StopTheSalt.com. After the hospital, I wrote that low-sodium cookbook. It's 120 recipes, all easy to make. No pictures to intimidate you. Not tons of ingredients. 
If you don't have cumin, you can still make a recipe. I cook all the time. I don't have cumin. So check that out. You can buy it at Amazon. You can buy it at Barnes & Noble. But if you buy it from my website, StopTheSalt.com, I make more money. And I'll sign it to you. And I'll even ship it to you. You have a little envelope that's signed by me. <laughs> so that's about it. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water. Eat your vegetables. Take your vitamins. Keep listening. Next week, three new guests. I'll talk to you then.